You are listening to Press Church Podcast. Please enjoy this week's message. We are continuing our series called Reverse the Curse. Last week we talked about the universal curse of sin that we're highlighting in this series that there are three universal curses that have affected mankind starting in Genesis. The first one is sin. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, stole the fruit, didn't listen to God, listened to the devil, listened to humanity, ate the fruit, and therefore by disobeying God, by using their own free will to decide they were going to disobey, they were not going to listen, they were not going to follow his instruction, they were going to do the opposite of it, sin entered into the world. And because sin entered in through Adam... We understand that the seed of Adam and Eve is now placed in each and every one of us. That now all of us have this sin nature placed inside of us. Although we are born alive physically, spiritually we are born dead. So therefore there had to be a reverse of the curse and it had to be Jesus and only Jesus. And Jesus shows up and says, I know that you were born alive but spiritually you were born dead. Therefore I will make a way for you to be reborn, to be born again spiritually because you can't be revived yourself, I'm going to have to do it. He made a way where there was no way, and he reversed the curse. There are universal curses that were placed upon the earth, three of them in Genesis that we are highlighting, but it would be a terrible service if we just highlighted the three curses that were out there that affected each and every one of us if we didn't bring the truth about how Jesus and God planned to reverse the curse. So the series title is called reverse the curse. The universal curses we have is sin. The universal curse that we are going to talk about today is the flood. And the one that we will talk about next week is the Tower of Babel. Universal curses mean it affected everybody. Everybody got it. Whether you liked it or loved it, you got it. And we're going to see that today when it comes to the universal curse of the flood. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 6 is where we're going to find this story. Genesis chapter 6 starting in Verse 5. How can we know about reversing the curse if we don't find out and talk about the curse to begin with? Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's not a good thing. And the Lord was sorry. That word sorry means that he was truly sorry. That means that, that uh, another word in the Hebrew is repent. That in this moment, the Lord repented for what he did when he made man. Because if he saw the evil in the earth. And the Lord was sorry. He repented that he had made man on earth. And he was grieved in his heart. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. God is not holding back here in these couple of uh, scriptures. He is is genuinely grieved at what mankind is doing. Look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, a perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Verse 10, 
And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. In case God hasn't told you how bad the earth is, he thought he would drive it home in verse 11. The earth also was corrupt with God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. Are you getting uh, the idea here of how bad the earth was? He's not holding his tongue back in explaining how bad the world was. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Verse 13, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. We are six chapters in to the book of the Bible in Genesis. Now, if you read through that, the genealogy, hundreds of years have passed. We have Methuselah who's been alive for like 900 years. I think around this time, uh, Noah's close to four, 500 years old. So we've had some, some years pass for this evil to happen. But in just six chapters of the first part of the book of Genesis, in the very beginning of the Bible, God makes this statement to Noah. The end of all flesh has come before me. We just started We haven't even got an iPhone yet. We haven't figured out what social media is. We haven't figured out how to drive cars, how to make cars, how to fly a plane. We haven't figured out how to really cook good foods and open restaurants and season them. We haven't opened up Disney World. We haven't had, uh, we haven't even found America yet. Christopher Columbus hasn't come over yet on his boat. The Mayflower hasn't happened. The Declaration of Independence hasn't been signed. We haven't had any wars. We haven't had any of these things. We haven't been able to to play with toys and and Legos and enjoy uh, building a house. We haven't gone anywhere in regards to building our civilization and building humanity. And God says at this moment, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Bet you Noah at that moment was glad that he walked with God. <laughs> at that moment, he probably had a small smile on his face, said, Thank you, God, that we have a relationship. Sin had entered and taken over the world and taken over mankind. Flood did not happen in a few books in the Bible. It doesn't show up in the Gospels, it doesn't show up in the writings of Paul after. Jesus has died on the cross. It shows up in Genesis. And God says that they have been so far removed. Sin has taken over so quickly and spread throughout humanity that over a couple hundred years, there is no one that loves me, there's no one that cares for me, there's no one that's serving me, and he says, I'm going to destroy everything, everybody, I'm sorry I even decided to try this experiment. But then he looked down on the earth, and it says that grace was found with Noah. There was one person, one family that was serving him, and that is a picture of grace, where he says, I can't destroy him, he's on my side. We have a relationship. We, we have conversations. We, we talk, and I can't destroy Noah. Due to Noah finding grace, God, God decided to still destroy everything but save one man. God made the decision, I'm going to save one man, 
and destroy the rest of the world, the rest of humanity. And then after the flood, God made the decision to reverse that curse by saying, I'm going to kill one man and save all of humanity. Isn't the scriptures a beautiful thing? He said, I'll save Noah and I'll destroy everybody else. But here in the next couple of years, I'm going to send my son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he's going to die. And instead of all of humanity dying, I'll kill one man. And because I kill one man, it'll save all of humanity. Praise God. So let's look at this curse as it evolves. Genesis chapter 7. We're going to go one chapter over, starting in verse 20. Noah's whole story is like Genesis 6 through 9, so throughout your studies of the week, if you want to just read through that, you can. There's three or four chapters in regards to the story of Noah's. We're just jumping in and highlighting. Genesis chapter 7, verse 20, Noah has built an ark. He's built a boat, a very large boat. At this point in time, we don't see in the scriptures that it has rained, that water has fallen from the sky. We don't see in the scriptures that a boat has ever been made, especially a boat of that magnitude. And God shows up and says, hey, no, I want you to build a boat. Build a what? They didn't have Wikipedia. They didn't have a dictionary. They didn't have YouTube at the time to figure out how to build a boat. And then God starts giving him measurements, specific measurements. Have you ever been on the phone with somebody or talking with somebody and they try and just throw numbers at you? Hey, I need you to call my mom. Her number is 222-374-1176. I got a two. I got, I got just like a two and a three there. Can we go back through it? And God starts speaking to Noah and saying, I want you to build an ark this big, this wide. Use this wood. Use this tar. Put a window here. Bring these animals here. This many amount of clean animals. This many amount of unclean animals. Oh, by the way, it's going to rain and it's coming soon. So you probably should hurry. Also, everyone's probably going to make fun of you because nobody knows what's going on and what's going to happen. He builds this ark. He puts his people in, his family in, the animals in. And it says in the scriptures that God himself closed the door and shut it. God had made a decision. He said, I'll save Noah and his family. I'm destroying the rest of y'all. Nobody else is getting in here. And let's pick it up as the waters are coming down from the sky. The heavens are open as the ground below is being torn open as water is coming through that. Verse 20, Genesis 7 verse 20. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. A cubit is uh, from your elbow to I believe the middle part of your middle finger, if I read it correctly. And that could be anywhere from 18 to 20 inches is how they would measure it. So if you do some rough math, I saw that it was at least 25 feet high, the water at this point. And then it got so high that the mountains were covered. And all the flesh, verse 21, died that moved on earth. Birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. Verse 23. So he destroyed all living things 
which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. So we see the universal curse happen right before our eyes. All people are affected here. There's no place that they could go. There's no place that they could hide outside of Noah and his family who are in the ark that are being thrown around by the water and the waves. Imagine the storm. Imagine the noise. Imagine the pure chaos of God unleashing this torrential downpour, this flood that is going higher and higher and higher and as people are trying to escape. God says, because there is evil set before and there is no one on the earth outside of Noah who are pursuing me. And the only thing that they're pursuing is evil and sin and hatred in their heart. He said, I was going to destroy and wipe out everybody, but I'm going to save Noah, and then I'm going to use Noah in his genealogy to continue on the salvation plan that I have. We need to understand something that we hear quite frequently when some type of natural disaster happens in the world. So many people, and unfortunately even pastors and people in the church, want to accuse God of sending that natural disaster. Because people stand and say, well, we see this pattern throughout the scriptures that God has sent natural disasters. In the Old Testament, he sent natural disasters. And usually when he sent natural disasters, it was to kill people. And when he killed people, he was very specific in who and what he was killing. Remember, he had a covenant with the Israelite people. Anybody who attacked his people, it was God's responsibility to attack them. God had no sorrow in killing the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. We see it throughout the scriptures because if you attacked his people, he was coming for you. And then also, because of the old covenant, remember, the main focus of the old covenant was you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. So therefore, God's hand, when the Israelites sinned and they did bad, because of the old covenant, they got bad. But God is very accurate whenever he would send his natural disasters. He sends the flood and says, everyone's going to die except for Noah and his family. That's what happened. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, he gets his people out of there. And he's very specific in how he destroys that. Even when we see the rebellion of Korah with the Israelites, an earthquake happens and swallows up their family. Not everybody, just the people that were involved. That if there were three of us involved in the rebellion, that God would open up, swallow them in the earthquake, and then I would still be standing there. Wow, that was... But there, in the New Covenant, there is a reversal in how God uses natural disasters. When there was a storm that was raging on the waters, 
Jesus stood up in that storm and said, peace be still. When Paul and Silas were in jail and they were praising God, an earthquake happened and set them free and set everyone free in there. We see, I had one more example, where were we at? Oh yeah, that's a good one. We see an earthquake happen when Jesus was on the cross. And it says that through that earthquake, people came up out of the graves alive. In the Old Testament, when God sent a natural disaster, it killed people. Under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we see every time a natural disaster happened and God was involved, people were saved and people were set free. Family, I want to remind you that we're still under the New Covenant. That it says in the Scriptures that God is good and will continually do good. There's going to be natural disasters that happen this year. There's fires in California. There's always hurricanes that are hitting and destroying the southeast coast. There are things that are going to happen on the other side of the world. And you're going to hear preachers. You're going to hear pastors. You're going to hear Christian people say, well, that's just God destroying so-and-so or who-and-who for what they're doing. Well, there's fire in California They're destroying them because of this, this, and this. I grew up in Louisiana, and the hurricane that came through, mainly Katrina, they said, well, it's going to New Orleans because of the voodoo and the evil in New Orleans. Well, it killed a lot of innocent people. When I see natural disasters and God causing them in the Old Testament, he was very specific in who died. Not innocent, not people that called upon him, not people that were in love with him, not people that were his sons and daughters. And when I see natural disasters happening and God being involved in them in the New Testament, I see God saving people and restoring people. So it's going to happen. You're going to hear about it. Some hurricane's going to happen. Some earthquake's going to happen. Some fire's going to happen. Some stooge is going to get up and say, that's God condemning America for this, this, and that. No, I'm sorry. My God is good. My God doesn't send evil. He's going to take care of and protect his people. Let's move on. At the end of the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. We know about it. It's called the rainbow. Let's read about it. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 14. This is God speaking and talking with Noah after the flood. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the clouds. Verse 15, and I will remember every time there is a rainbow in the cloud. That means God up in heaven remembers his covenant that he made with Noah and he made with the generations of Noah. My covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This right here, this scripture right here, puts a real damper on those climate control people who think that eventually the floods are going to overtake, the ice caps are going to melt, and we're going to flood all the world. It's a little damper on that one right there if we believe the Scriptures. He said, flood will never consume the whole earth again. I choose to believe my God and my Bible over those things. 
So it says that God put a rainbow up in the clouds so every time you see it, you'll remember his covenant and he'll remember his covenant. But look at this next scripture of how God also wants to continually put the covenant in front of his own eyes. Look all the way in Revelations verses 4, chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. This is John going up into heaven during his revelations. And it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven. There is only one throne that is in heaven, and that is God who is seated on that throne, and one sat on that throne. Look at verse 3. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And look at this scripture. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Not only did God put a rainbow over the earth to remind you and him of his covenant, he put a rainbow around his throne. He could have put anything in his throne room, but he's got a rainbow in there that he can look at over and over and over again to remind himself how much he loves you, how much he wants to save you, how much he wants to restore you, and how much he wants to reverse the curse in you and your life. He could have put anything. He could have put the rainbow at the beginning of the pearly gates. He could have put the rainbow somewhere else in heaven, but he decided that he was going to put that rainbow around his throne. Family, I want to ask you, do you know how much God wants to save you in humanity? Boy, we got to preach. Here we go. Reversing the curse. So the flood is the universal curse. So how can we reverse the curse? How did God establish reversing this curse in our lives? And it can be found in water baptism. How can sin be reversed? It's through Jesus and it's through salvation in our own personal lives. How can we reverse the curse of the flood in our own personal lives? It's through water baptism. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to look at the story of Jesus getting baptized. Chapter 3 verses 11 through 17. John the Baptist is preaching. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amen. Verse 12, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Verse 13, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, and Jesus shows up on the scene. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need not. I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Verse 15, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Verse 16, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and beheld the heavens were open to him and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning upon him. Verse 17, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They always give God a deep voice. What if we get to heaven and he has a real high pitched voice? This is my beloved son in whom I... No, okay, well... You'll laugh about it later. (laughs) Next time you read the Bible, just read it in a different voice. You might learn something, or at least laugh at it. Jesus came up immediately from the water. Family, if Jesus was fully submerged in water baptism, then I believe from looking at the Scriptures 
that water baptism is full submersion underwater. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. But the reason that we do full submersion, if you get baptized by me in this church, baby, you're going all the way under. Hold your breath. We're putting you deep, deep, deep in the water. Because we're reversing the curse. Goes back to the flood. Humanity, when they died, they went all the way underwater. They didn't get sprinkled by the flood. They got submerged by the flood. And that sin and that death and that death nature died and sunk to the bottom of that water. We see Jesus being laid in the water all the way, submerged. Just as all humanity went fully underwater during the flood and died, so too must we go fully underwater to drown and kill that old man. Family, we have to understand that everything that dies has to be buried. I've never gone to a funeral and we put the dead in the ground and then we just take one shovel full of dirt, throw it on the coffin, and then leave. When we bury our dead, we bury them. We put them six feet under and we stack and pack dirt on top of them. Everything that dies needs to be buried. We don't sprinkle our dead. We cover it up completely and bury are dead. When you're water baptized, you completely bury the old man, which is your old nature. You no longer, when you come up out of that water, you no longer identify with who you were, that dead nature, that flood nature, that sinful nature, every intent of the heart being evil. You no longer identify with that man. We have buried him and killed him under the water of water baptism. And when we bring you up out of there, we bring you up in God and in Jesus and the full authority and the new identity of who Jesus is. The beautiful thing about this story in Matthew chapter 3 is we see the reversal of all three universal curses happening in this story to Jesus. Jesus being the salvation for sin is there in that story. Jesus being baptized in this story, water baptized, full submersion, going all the way down, coming all the way back up, getting rid and showing us. And then finally, what we'll talk about next week with the Tower of Babel, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in fire, settling upon him as a dove. We see all three of the universal curses being reversed in this one moment with Jesus. I'm almost done. Three more scriptures. I believe that water baptism is more than a symbol. I believe that water baptism is even more than an outward expression of an inward work that we talk about. I believe that God has designed water baptism to do something even more wonderful. Look at Romans chapter 6 verse 4. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism unto death. Buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. That water baptism is not just a symbol, it's not just I'm getting wet, it's not just something we do at church. There is something that is important that happens, yes, physically, but also spiritually, that you are burying your old man under that water. And when you come up out of that, you are coming out alive in Christ and look, walking in the newness of life. 
Water baptism is how you get the newness of life activated in your life. What is walking in the newness of life? I believe that it's walking in the Spirit. The Scripture shows us that we can live in the Spirit. Put up Galatians 5.25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So this Scripture right here shows us that we can live in the Spirit but we don't ultimately always walk in the Spirit. It's a choice and a responsibility for us to walk in the Spirit. So we can live in the Spirit. Remember that through salvation, you are no longer dead. You are alive. You are now living in the Spirit. You are no longer a sinner. You are righteous. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer uh, a Gentile. You are no longer uh, an enemy of God. You are now a son and daughter of the Most High God. You have been taken out of the world of darkness. You have been placed in the Spirit and the uh, the 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 kingdom of light. If we live in the Spirit, God also, and the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to walk in the Spirit. And what is a great way to help us walk in the Spirit, if we go back to Romans, is through water baptism. Because it says through water baptism, it says in verse 6, I mean in verse 4 of Romans 6, that just as we were raised from the dead of glory, even so we also should walk in the newness of of life. The scripture shows us we can live in the spirit through salvation, but with water baptism, we have an opportunity to walk in the spirit or that newness of life. If we can go all the way back to Genesis 7 verse 22, please. Verse 22, 7:22 says, "All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on dry land died." That the spirit of life, the breath of the spirit of life was removed out of humanity when they went under that water. But when you come up out of that water, we see in Romans chapter 6 verse 4 that you are given a fresh breath of the spirit of life and the power and empowered to walk in the newness of life. Look at Galatians 5 chapter 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Family, I want to encourage you today, if you haven't been water baptized, it is a phenomenal, phenomenal thing that will change your life. If you truly grasp and understand the importance and the power of water baptism, how it's reversing the curse of the universal flood in your life, that you are letting go of the dead man and you are killing him off and you are coming up out of that water identifying with Christ and it is empowering you and helping you walk in the Spirit of God. That you're living there, but it gives you the ability and the power to walk in the newness of of life. The breath of the Spirit was removed from humanity by going under the water. But now with water baptism, you bury the old man, but come out of the water with a newness of life in the Spirit. Last thing I'm saying, and I'm stopping, water baptism is not a requirement for salvation. You can go to heaven and never be water baptized. Salvation is grace through faith, believing in what Jesus did the work of the cross. That is what salvation is. If you want to go to heaven, you believe and confess by grace through faith what he did for you on the cross, that Christ died for your sins, he was buried in a tomb, and he rose again the third day. You've reversed the curse of sin. But as you go on your journey throughout life, I encourage you 
to taste and see that the Lord is good by being water baptized because it will help you and empower you and encourage you on your journey going forward. Doesn't matter if you've already been water baptized, praise God. There is no condemnation through Christ Jesus. If you're sitting there now saying, well, I think I was sprinkled. They just put my head underwater. They just put my hand underwater. They did whatever. There's no condemnation. However you were water baptized was good enough. It's good. God is good. He is gracious. But I'm telling you here what I believe and what I see in the scriptures. If you get water baptized by me, we're going all the way under, baby. And we're coming up in a newness of life. We're coming up rejoicing. We're coming up shouting. We're coming up believing that you are uh, not only living in the Spirit, but you will be walking in the Spirit. You will see things different. You will, be, you will be changed forevermore when you are empowered and blessed by water baptism. You were saved by grace through faith. However, you have this world to contend with on a daily basis. Water baptism causes you to walk a different walk of life in this world, a new walk, a newness of life. Reversing the curse. He reversed the curse by introducing water baptism to us. He reversed the curse of sin, introducing salvation. He reversed the curse of the flood by introducing water baptism. If you haven't been water baptized, you want to be water baptized, you want to talk more about water baptism, please get with us uh, and we will make a way to water baptize you as soon as we can. If you want to wait until it gets a little bit warmer, uh, then we'll dunk, dunk, dunk you in some, uh, some warm. We have a trough somewhere around here that we can fill up, but boy, will it be cold. Um, but we actually, you're right, we just have a hot tub at Miss Karen's house. I can baptize you in a hot tub. I can baptize you in a pool. We can go to your house and fill up your tub full of warm water, and I'll baptize you there. If you want to be water baptized, please let us know, um, and we will make a way for that to happen as soon as we can. Next week, we're talking about the Tower of Babel and how he reversed that curse. You guessed it. We're going to be talking about speaking in tongues next week. So if you are interested in that, I advise you to come and hear the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. Let's stand up, and hey, we're getting you all out right on time. Praise God. Father, we thank you for today. Father, I thank you that although there were these curses that were placed on the whole world, that you made a way, you made an opportunity for us to reverse the curse in our lives. Father, we thank you that he that the sun sets free is free indeed, that you have removed sin out of our lives by sending us Jesus, and we can bury that old, dirty, sinful disgusting man in the waters of the flood and we can come out of that alive and victorious and glorious and walking not only living in the spirit but walking in the spirit with a newness of life that we can be open in our eyes and in our spirit and in our hearts to see what you have for us that it says that you will guide us in all truth you will show us of things to come you will help us you will give us the gifts of the spirit you will give us the fruit of the spirit and that it's an opportunity in water baptism, to be transformed and be renewed in our lives and in our minds and in our bodies, Father. So I thank you for each and every person here that you speak to them and you encourage them if they haven't been water baptized, for them to study out the scriptures, for them to see what the Lord has said about what water baptism means to them and for them to make that decision, to make that declaration of faith, to step out in faith and go under the water completely and come out of that water completely victorious, healed, whole, and restored. 
Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach to your people that your word will not return void. Father, I thank you for the people that are here and the people that aren't here, that by Jesus' stripes they are already healed. Father, I thank you they are the head and not the tail. They are above and not beneath. They are blessed in the city and blessed in the field, and everything they put their hands to must prosper. Father, I thank you that they have the mind of Christ. Father, I thank you that your word says that we are the salt and light of the earth. We are a city set on a hill. We will go out and we will do the great commission. We will lay hands on the sick and watch them recover. We will go out and make disciples. We will go out and cast out demons. We will go out and raise the dead. Everywhere we go, we release the fragrance of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere we go. Now, Father, bless your people. Cause your face to shine upon them. Be gracious in everything that they do and bring them back safely. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you all next Sunday. Take care, family. Thank you for listening to Press Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us or are interested in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in our bio or visit presschurch.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Press Church SC and have a great week.